Thank you. 
Welcome to you all. Just to let you know that at the end of our, towards the end of our time together, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, we're still not sure if we'll get to sing outside. We didn't earlier this morning, uh, but we'll keep our eye on the weather and we may or may not go outside to sing at the end. Uh, then just to mention, uh, last week we heard about the initiative um, UK, Hong Kong uh, churches. And um, if you were here last week and you didn't get to sign up for that and you want to, there's still a, a sign up here on this table. If you weren't here last week, there's a, a little slot in last week's service in the morning that you could watch to find out about that. And there's also then a sign up for the ladies retreat as well if you want to do that at the end. Then we are meeting again uh, this evening at 6 p.m. to continue this week in Matthew's Gospel. And we also have in the week our online prayer time, 7.45 on Thursday, and there will be an email circulating about that. And just to remind you a little bit further in advance, we have our church annual general meeting, Thursday, June 24th at 7.30. And in preparation for that, if you are a member, there are some deacons re-election forms with your name on them, and I think if you may have been given those on the way in. If you weren't, there will be some, I think, at the table uh, in the entrance for you, so please make sure you pick those up at the end. And then further in advance, we're having a tasty desserts afternoon here at the church, Tuesday, the, July the 6th, and that's between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. in aid of uh, taste. Hopefully you know who taste are. If you've got any questions, you could ask Jan or Connie, who conveniently are sitting uh, on the same row. So you can find them afterwards if you want to find out any more about that. We're going to begin our time of worship with a Bible reading from the New Testament. We're going to read about a very significant event in Jesus' life where Jesus said something very significant about himself. It's John chapter 2, John chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 13 to 22. When it was almost the time to Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, all, uh, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get this out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will rise, rise it again in, this, in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to rise in, in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is words of God. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the true temple of God. He is the place where you have perfectly revealed your grace and your truth. He is the son whom you love. And this morning we come to you in his name. We come on the basis of his righteousness. We come trusting in his atoning sacrifice for sin. And we thank you that you welcome us because of Jesus. You have poured out your Holy Spirit on us because of Jesus. This morning, will you remind us that all the promises you have made are fulfilled in Christ. Will you help us in a fresh way to put our hope in him, now and forever. Help us rest in him and draw our strength from him. And as we leave this place this morning and go to lots of different places, will you help us live for him there? We ask these things in his name. Amen. The first song reminds us that Jesus shall take the highest honor. Thank you. 
our Sunday school are going to be moving next door to continue their time of worship. And the transition class, I think, is going to join Steve, who's already upstairs. Do you ever feel distracted? Like you're being pulled in a dozen directions at once. Like there are so many things you ought to focus on, you end up not able to focus on anything. I think all of us experience that at times. And the problem of distracted, unfocused lives is not a new problem. It's a human problem. It's a problem that's been around since human beings rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. And as the Israelites prepared to enter Canaan, Moses knew they would be in danger of living distracted and unfocused lives. Yes, they were about to enter the promised land, but that would not automatically solve all their problems. So in our passage this morning, Moses shows them how to live in Canaan. His message is, center your life. And hopefully we'll see this instruction is just as important for you and me today as it was for these ancient Israelites. But if you were here last week, you may remember that we looked at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 10. This morning we're coming to chapter 12. So what happened to chapter 11? Well, chapter 11 is really a summary of what's been said in the previous chapters especially in chapters 5 to 10. In chapter 11, Moses reiterates the call to love the Lord by obeying His commands. If you read ahead and you read chapter 11, or if you read it later, you'll recognize some key statements there taken from previous chapters. And that summary in chapter 11 prepares for the much more specific instructions that are going to come in the next block of the book verses chapters 12 to 26, actually. So we're going to move straight on to the start of those specific instructions. If you have a Bible, follow along as we read chapter 12, verses 1 to 28. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places." You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go, 
There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit. Since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there, rejoice before the Lord, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns who have no land allotted to them or any inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your corn and new wine and olive oil, or the firstborn of your hares and flocks, or whatever you have vowed to give, or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns. And you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as he promised you, and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat as much of it as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. And in your own towns, you may eat as much of them as you want. Eat them as you would gazelle or deer. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat. But be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life. And you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood. Pour it on the ground like water. Do not eat it so that it may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But take your consecrated things and whatever you have vowed to give and go to the place the Lord will choose. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful. To obey all these regulations I am giving you, so that it may always go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. This is God's Word. And this passage falls very neatly into two sections of 14 verses each. First, we hear about the one place of worship in verses 1 to 14. 
And then we hear about an opportunity in every place in verses 15 to 28. Each of those two sections makes just one point, which is then repeated for emphasis in the second half of that section. You probably noticed the repetition as we read through. So first in verses 1 to 14, the one place of worship, turn from restlessness to rest. In verses 2 and 3, we hear something that will sound familiar because we heard it back in chapter 7, the call to break down, smash, and destroy the idols and the pagan altars in Canaan. But while part of this is familiar, something has been added this time. These verses not only tell the Israelites to get rid of the idols and altars, they also give us a picture of Canaanite worship. And it's a picture of vast restlessness. It has no center to it. And so it has no real focus. Verse 2 says when Israel enters Canaan, what they're going to find is places of worship on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree. These people were totally indiscriminate in their worship. Every nook and cranny, it seems, had a shrine, and every shrine had its idol. The worship of these people went in many different directions, and every god needed something different, had to be approached in a different way. The whole place was like a marketplace of gods, a massive retail park of worship. What an exhausting way to live. Running to this God to try and have this need met, making an offering at that shrine to try and sort that problem. Maybe the answer is under the next sacred tree or at the altar on top of the next hill. Maybe the next offering I make will do the trick. That God will listen and respond. That's what it was like in Canaan. And isn't it true that our society today lives with the same vast restlessness? We have our shrines, don't we, to entertainment and sport. We have our altars to physical and mental health and leisure, fashion, online profiles, job satisfaction, relationship status. We've got to look right, dress right, eat right, exercise right, drive the right car, live in the right house, find the right career, be with the right person, have the right friends, swallow the right medication, get your kids into the right school, then get them into the right job. There's always one more sacred tree to try, one more altar to run to on top of the next hill. It's exhausting. And as God's people, you and I can get sucked right into it. We can become just as restless as everybody else is. Here in our passage, Moses assumes the Israelites will be prone to getting sucked into this even as they continue professing to worship the Lord. In verse 4, he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. In other words, don't claim to worship the Lord by putting up nice Bible verses on your wall, 
while your life is actually on the same worship merry-go-round as everybody else. Instead of joining in with that merry-go-round, God's people are to take a radically different approach to life. They're to live a life centered on just one place of worship. You see that in verse 5. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. The worship of God's people is to be centered on just one place. Instead of being frittered away and scattered in a dozen directions, it's to have just one focus. And verse 5 says that one place will be chosen by the Lord himself. The restless twirling about is to end. Their devotion is to center on that one chosen place. And look at the picture then of this centered worship and these centered lives in verse 7. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and you shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. It's a joyful feast. It's satisfying. And there's a togetherness among these feasting people. Verse 7 just mentions your families, but later on when much of this is repeated, verse 12 expands the picture to include male and female servants and the Levites from your towns, the priests. That kind of community and togetherness does not happen when everyone's chasing off to different shrines, making offerings at different altars. The togetherness we see here is a byproduct of everyone focusing on the one place of worship. That's what unites them. When there's just one place of worship, restlessness can be replaced with rest. And biblical rest doesn't just mean having a holiday or taking a nap. It's a deep satisfaction. It's harmony with those around you. And it flows out in feasting and rejoicing. So what do we know about the one place where God's people are to focus their lives and their worship and find rest? Well, we've already seen in verse 5, it's the place the Lord will choose. Verse 5 also says, he will put his name there for his dwelling. That means more than just he'll put up a sign with his name on it. In the Bible, and more generally in the ancient world, somebody's name was inseparable from who they were. Sometimes a person's name would be changed to reflect a change in who they were. So, for example, the man we know as Abraham was originally called Abram. Abram means exalted father. But when God entered into a covenant with Abraham, God changed his name to Abraham, from Abram to Abraham. Abraham means father of many. That new name reflected Abraham's new status. 
It reflected God's promises to him. Abraham's name was inseparable from who he was. And so here, when we're told that God is going to choose a place to put his name, it means that's the place where you'll truly meet him. That's the place where you can truly come to know him. You can't truly meet him or know him at any other place. You can seek him in a thousand different places. But you'll only find him at this one place. So then where is this one place God has chosen? Well, if we've read the Old Testament before, we might be confident we know the answer. It's Jerusalem, right? Well, yes, but not at first. Jerusalem did eventually become the place, but there was a temporary place before Jerusalem. The book of Joshua tells us after Israel settled in the land, Shiloh was the place where all the Israelites gathered together to worship the Lord. And later, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord confirms Shiloh was his choice. It wasn't a random place that Joshua chose. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the Lord says, Shiloh was where I first made a dwelling for my name. And then later, yes, during the time of King David, the Lord identified Jerusalem as the one place where he was to be worshipped. And that's where David's son Solomon then built the magnificent temple to the Lord. So what? What does it matter that Shiloh came before Jerusalem? Well, it shows that what matters is God's choice of place. And he can choose a temporary dwelling place if he wants, like Shiloh. And in fact, if we read on in Scripture and follow the Bible's storyline, we discover that Jerusalem also was merely a temporary dwelling place for God's name. Hundreds of years after Solomon built the temple, the prophet Ezekiel saw God's presence leaving the temple, never to return there. Both Shiloh and Jerusalem served a great purpose for a time. But they were only provisional, transitory places. Neither of them was the ultimate place where men and women can meet and know God. When we come to the New Testament, we find out that ultimate place is actually a person. We've seen that God's name is a way of speaking about who He really is. And the New Testament describes Jesus Christ as the Son of God who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. We're told, God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And so it makes sense that when Jesus stood in front of the magnificent rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, in the passage we read earlier from John's Gospel, Jesus could stand in front of that great temple and describe himself as the true temple of God. He is the ultimate place of worship. And later Jesus was able to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Shiloh and Jerusalem had their day, but they were only temporary. They were only preparations for the arrival of Jesus Christ. He is the one place where we meet and know God. So if you've been hoping to meet God in other places, come and find him in Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, the challenge for us is the same as it was for these ancient Israelites. When they arrived in Canaan, they didn't have to make their own one place where God would put his name. God showed them the place he'd chosen. First Shiloh, then later Jerusalem. So they knew the place. The challenge for them was to center their lives and their worship on the place God chose. Not to follow the Canaanites who chased satisfaction in a dozen different places. Who frittered away their devotion on the hills and under every spreading tree. The challenge for God's people was to be different. Not just to be people who knew about the one place of worship, but to actively and intentionally center their worship on that one place. To make it the center and focus of their lives. And isn't that where you and I can so often get it wrong? We know who's supposed to be the center of our lives, but we so easily get distracted from him. And before we know it, our sense of rest is gone. We're overwhelmed instead by restlessness. Because our lives aren't centered at all. Some of our hope maybe rests in our income and our savings. Some of our hope rests in having the perfect family. Maybe we've started hoping for satisfaction through holidays or nice stuff or the latest stuff or the right medical solutions or the right relationship. That's like betting on a dozen horses and trying to keep track of which ones are running at what time and what ones have a chance of coming in ahead. When our lives lose their central focus on Jesus Christ, it's no wonder we're restless and agitated and anxious. And the answer to our restlessness is not to bet on a few more horses. It's not to widen our portfolio of things we put our hope in, things we bank on to give us joy and peace. That's just like the Canaanites running to another altar on another hilltop, bowing to another idol under another sacred tree. The way to find rest for our distracted souls is not to widen our search. The answer is to limit it. To focus all our hope and devotion on the living Lord Jesus. To recenter our lives on Him, the lover of our souls, 
the only place to meet and know God, the only place to find true and lasting satisfaction. And when you and I do that, all the other stuff in life doesn't just die away. It actually becomes richer and all the more enjoyable. When we turn from restlessness to rest, to the one place of worship, we find an opportunity in every place. We're ready to enjoy God's blessings within God's boundaries. At first, verses 15 to 28 might seem like a very odd section. It's all about slaughtering and eating meat. But actually, it's making a significant point. The point is that when our lives are properly centered, then our enjoyment of God's blessing actually becomes possible wherever we are. Verse 15 starts with the word, nevertheless. So this section is going to clarify a possible misunderstanding. What possible misunderstanding? Well, remember what's about to happen. When the Israelites cross the Jordan River and take over the land of Canaan, they're then going to disperse and settle over quite a large area, roughly this area. Each tribe in Israel is going to be allotted territory in Canaan. And that means many of the people would live a long way from the one place of worship. They would all assemble there for special religious festivals, but for most of their lives, they wouldn't be anywhere near Shiloh or later Jerusalem. And that created a problem when it came to meat, or at least it might seem to create a problem. Up to this point, the Israelites have lived together on one huge moving campsite as they've traveled through the wilderness. And in the middle of the campsite was the tabernacle tent. And all meat was to be slaughtered at the entrance of that tent. The only exceptions were meat that you hunted, like gazelle or deer. Anything that you had raised yourself, like oxen, lambs, or goats, that had to be slaughtered by the priests at the tabernacle. And that was fine when the tabernacle was only a few minutes' walk across the campsite. But once the Israelites spread out all over Canaan, does that mean they can no longer eat ox, lamb, or goat? Except for the few times a year when they go to the one place of worship and they have access to the priests? I realize that vegetarianism is fairly mainstream nowadays, but let's just say it wasn't so mainstream in Israel. They knew God had given humanity plants and animals for food. Equally, though, it's worth pointing out that the Israelites had a much more humane relationship with their animals than we do today. They raised them by hand, not in factory farms. In any case, meat was considered a blessing from God, both for strength and just for enjoyment. And so the question is, by calling us to focus our worship on one place, is the Lord also diminishing the enjoyment we can have in life? Does it mean the rest of life becomes drab? And well, 
meatless, which for many people amounts to the same thing. That's the background to what we read in verse 15. Verse 15 says, nevertheless, in other words, although your worship must be focused on the one place the Lord your God will choose, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. People who were ceremonially unclean were temporarily unable to go to the place of worship. Now, that wasn't necessarily because they'd done something sinful. It could happen for a whole host of reasons. Coming into contact with a dead body, for example, or having certain diseases. But what's being said here is that those things might bar you from going to Shiloh or Jerusalem for a period of time, but they're no barrier to enjoying God's good gifts all of the time. Meat is just one example of his many good gifts. So one writer sums up the message like this, go ahead, don't wait until you're at the sanctuary to celebrate the goodness of God. In our situation, we might say, you don't have to be gathered at church on Sunday to celebrate the goodness of God. Wherever you are, whatever day of the week it is, His gifts and blessings are there for our enjoyment. And as we enjoy those gifts and blessings, we're to take care to enjoy them within the boundaries God has set. You can see that in verse 16. The blood isn't to be eaten. The reason for that seems to be that blood represents life. And other cultures believed that eating blood was a way of absorbing the life force of the animal. God's people are not to buy into that lie. They're to look to Him for life, not to some pagan idea about absorbing it from others. But in any case, the significant point here is that while the Israelites are to enjoy life and its good things all the time, they're to do so within the boundaries that God sets. In this particular case, leave the blood alone. That's the way it's always been. Life is to be lived within God's boundaries. Back in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, enjoy this garden I've made for you. It's full of blessings. It's full of good things for you. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Only you must not eat from that one tree there. It's the same principle all through Scripture. Life is to be enjoyed. God's world is full of good things. Just make sure you do it as you explore and delight in those things. Just make sure you do it within the boundaries God has set. His boundaries are good. His boundaries are wise. Life is at its best within His boundaries. That's true when it comes to food and drink. It's true when it comes to sex and relationships. It's true when it comes to work and its rewards. And everything else you or I might get involved in. 
Enjoy God's blessings within God's boundaries. And then verses 17 and 18 remind us this opportunity in every place is only for those whose lives are truly centered on the one place of worship. Having heard that God's blessings can be enjoyed everywhere, verses 17 and 18 underline the fact that our worship can only be directed to one place. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your corn and new wine and olive oil or the firstborn of your herds and flocks or whatever you have vowed to give or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns. And you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. You can eat your meat anywhere. Enjoy God's blessings in all of life every day of the week. But always, your worship must be focused. Don't dilute your worship by letting your devotion go in different directions to different things. When it comes to what you live for and where you look to for satisfaction, don't bet on a bunch of different horses. Don't pin your hopes and set your heart on several different things. That's what the Canaanites do frittering away their devotion on the hills and under every spreading tree. Moses says to God's people, you're not to be like that. Your sacrifices, your worship, must be brought to the one place. That is the way from restlessness to rest. And in his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul explains what that means for you and me. We're not called to focus our worship on Shiloh or even Jerusalem. Those are only temporary places of worship, and they've served their purpose. They've given way to the true place God has chosen. Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our life. Let's focus our hearts and our hope on Him. Let's give Him our devotion. Even as we enjoy all of God's varied blessings, let's keep bringing our focus back to the only one who's worthy of our worship. The only one who can give us rest. Day by day, and it is a daily thing for us. Let's keep re-centering our hearts and our lives on Him. In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper, which is a wonderful God-given opportunity to get our focus back in the right place. 
That's why Jesus told us to celebrate this meal regularly until he comes. But before we serve the bread and wine, the musicians are going to help us focus our worship as they sing, Fairest Lord Jesus. Jesus, who 
We heard earlier that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus is the true temple of God. And in love, he laid down his life for our salvation. How could we withhold our worship from him? How could we fritter our lives away in devotion to anything or anyone else? If you're not trusting in Jesus and seeking to live a life of devotion to him, then please just let the bread and wine pass you by today. But do please take the chance to consider him, consider what he's done, who he is, and ask yourself, isn't he worthy of my trust and my worship? If you do belong to Jesus, then please take this opportunity to recenter your life on him. Speak to him about anything you've been living for instead of him. That can happen to us so subtly. So if something, if you become aware of something that's been elbowing its way into his place, speak to him about it in these moments. And then as you eat the bread and drink the wine, give thanks that you can call him your Savior and your Lord. Jesus said this bread represents his body broken for us on the cross. And I'll ask the servers to distribute the bread. And as you're served, please keep the bread and we'll eat it together once everyone has been served. We'll do that as a sign of our unity in Christ.
Let's eat and remember. In the person of Jesus Christ, we meet and know God himself. Jesus said this wine represents the new covenant in his blood. The only way to relationship with God is through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice. Again, as the servers distribute the wine now, we'll keep the cup and drink it together. Let's drink together and give thanks for the rest we have in Jesus. <clears throat> well, the weatherman has given me a thumbs up. Gareth, the weatherman. So if you're a game and you're willing, we'll follow the musicians and head outside and sing there are song sheets by the door so i encourage you to pick one of those up on your way out and maybe share one between a couple if uh, if you can but otherwise there should be plenty we'll
strength to cast out fear. 